There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. NLT is not here today. She is poorly, so Sunil Rupani um, said yes. <laughs> so, yeah, it wasn't yes, it was more like, oh, if I have to. <laughs> you know you know, I love it. Yeah. I love hanging out. Yeah, I'm we sure have fun. Uh, we're going to try to. Do you know what? It's uh, Drive Live Talks Legal. So questions for little Millie Oliver, who is here in the room with us right now, 4001 or via the free app. Questions through uh, as soon as possible because it always gets busy. We've got a number of questions to get to from last week, which we will come to in a couple of minutes' time. First of all, though, Bella, nice to see you. Good to be back here and great to see you as always. Very good to have you back. Uh, Tennis last week, back in the studio this week, not quite as salubrious, but there you go. I want to ask you about tax to start with today. We're going to come to a topic we didn't get to last week, applicability of VAT on export of services. That's to come. But you came in all uh, bubbling and frothing about tax certificates, so we'll start there. It it is a very exciting topic, you must agree. (laughs) I do. Yes, this is a topic I've I've wanted to update the listeners, and this relates to a tax certificate that's issued by the UAE authorities for the purposes of a person's uh, home country. And usually these tax certificates are used uh, to ultimately minimize or receive some sort of a tax benefit in the the person's home jurisdiction. So let's say if you're from Russia or from England or from the Czech Republic. So uh, every year, if you have UAE residency here, historically it was um, uh, on the basis of UAE residency, you would just get once a year, you would come back to the the country, get a tax certificate from the authority and presented to the authorities at home. Well, as of perhaps about six months or so, uh, there have been a few substantial changes, one of which is um, you ultimately have to have actually a residency, physical residency here, not just a visa residency. And this is an an interesting element because historically, it's um, if you had a UU residency visa, that in itself was sufficient for uh, for a lot of the the residents here to present to the authorities at home, showing that they in fact reside elsewhere, uh, and that is in the UAE. Uh, Then... And it was also sufficient for the local authorities to issue the tax certificate. Now, they actually require that you have, in addition to the UU residence visa, that you actually have your own residency. Now, how do you have residency these days? Again, historically, it was possible to, for, for example, sublet, and or you will just show a copy of a of a lease agreement, and it didn't have to be registered anywhere. So basically, you and I could come up with a lease agreement and just sign it and present that to the authorities, and that was sufficient. Okay. Not anymore now because of a jari uh, requirement. Uh, you, all if you do have a lease and you're required to have a lease to have to apply for your residency uh, or for the tax certificate, that you are required to have your own property. Uh, be it owned or leased, and that property has to be registered with the jury. So, in in other words, you're no longer allowed to just present a copy of the contract. You have to show the uh, certificate from the jury, which is an official certificate that that property is registered in your name. That's one requirement, and uh, the second one, which is even more, uh, I guess, uh, more. Uh, onerous, if you will, depending on people's uh, preferences. But in many ways, a lot of a lot of uh, residents use this as a kind of benefit and were based in between two different countries, but less here and more so in their home country or elsewhere. Well, now the next requirement, which is a lot more arduous, um, because it, now they have to actually be in the country for 180 days. Uh, okay. Yes, and okay. that one, you see, you could you could have a residence visa, you could have your own property rented or bought, but obviously, being in the country for 180 days is is it's something you can't really buy or borrow. 
you you have to be here, and that's a, you know, that's a significant change because it does actually change a lot of um, you know for a lot of people's situations or, or reasons for actually having had the residence visa. But in many ways, it, it makes sense because uh, the UAE continues to. Uh, to, to work closely with other governments and and this probably was done in response to other governments uh, requests that because if they are issuing tax certificates and giving their residents benefit um, the tax benefits on the basis of uh, alternative residents then that residents better be actual residents and not uh, just so, so it fictitious. closes uh, potentially a loophole in uh, a number of the way a number of jurisdictions would look at where somebody's actual abode is you could Correct. be using this in title only so and also, yeah. I suppose, your visa runs out after six months, so six months in the country. You can see why, how this fits together. Sure. Yeah. And it's interesting. So you just said yes. And it, it's, it's also in, in parallel to that, there have been other changes, for example, with uh, international banks. In the past, uh, let's say, British Bank or Hong Kong Bank, uh, as well, they would request or they would, uh, they would accept documents from a UAE resident that would show, okay, yeah, you have UAE residency, therefore, for the banking purposes, we will accept that and we will treat you as a UAE resident. A resident. Now, in fact, be the bank in Hong Kong or any other uh, or in Europe, now they should require, once again, that you show proof that you have physical address here in the UAE. And, um, and they actually even from this is what we learned from our clients, they check to make sure the particular properties actually are residential properties and not office buildings, because obviously it's very easy to give any kind of address and how would one know that it's residential or uh, or commercial. So the banks actually go to that extent, again, once again, to kind of close that loophole, as you said, to make sure if they are giving preferential treatment to someone on the basis of their residency being in the UAE, then in fact they do have an actual residence. It's, I mean, it's long been the case, hasn't it? A bank would say, I need to see a passport copy, I need to see a copy of a lease contract, I need to see a utility bill, because we need to know that you live where you say you live. You can't expect any authority to be able to police... Uh, a subletting environment in totality, can you? There, are, it's just too hard. Well, that's it, and you know, this is. But this is. These are new changes, yeah. but they are expected. All right, then. So that uh, is one side. We'll come to, uh, after the news in a few minutes' time, we'll come to applicability of VAT on export of services. Uh, this keeps coming up, actually, and there's a text in today. I kind of expected this to come in a while ago, but people keep saying, because you come in here a lot, and people will remark on Ludmilla's in, I need to ask her a question, and I'll say, well, phone or text or whatever, 4001 via the free app, the usual story, 423-1010. Um, lots of people saying this. Can you shed any light on income tax being introduced here from 2020? And there there is, I don't know if there's anything in this room. I haven't heard anything. Have you? I'll zero in on the phrase, shed any light. No, I can't. Right. Well, I guess the only light I can shed is that uh, there have been numerous statements from various authorities over the last several years, and particularly several months after the VAT, that there are currently no plans to introduce income tax. And that's all we can rely on, and we have no reason to speculate otherwise. We certainly have not heard of any drafts being put together. And in fact, the contrary is true. We've had some fairly senior uh, authority leaders uh, or officials representatives stating that that's not coming anytime soon but obviously things are always subject to change. Uh, well I mean this is the thing and the private proviso is there that because you haven't heard anything doesn't mean to say something isn't coming but by the same token 
something isn't necessarily coming because you haven't heard anything. Do you know what I mean? That, that's the catch-22 here. Indeed, and I will tell you, as we are going through the process of uh, VAT implementation and integration, and this, this was to be expected, obviously, but this is going to be an ongoing and a long-term process, and it's going to be an evolving process because it is so complex. Uh, let's face it, a tax system in any country is extremely complex. But when you're actually starting anew for the first time ever, we don't even really have proper talent here. I mean, who's, I mean, how many people do you know that have actually studied tax and actually been using that skill here? So there's, I would imagine the next two or three years will continue to hone the, the infrastructure to be able to even handle the, the, the first type of tax. Um, 2020 is not that far away. It's only about a year and a half from now, if you think about it. So mm. I don't, in practical standpoints, I don't see it coming, but obviously I'm no authority on this particular issue. But if other authorities are to be believed, it's not it's not in the books for now. Okay, so that's the, it's not a definitive word, you can't expect that, but that's what we know at the moment. No uh, light shed on income tax at any point soon. Certainly a year and a half seems not the most likely time frame. But I will tell you, let me just also make one quick clar- clarification, because we've had this question come up talking about the income taxes, that some people's interpretation that VAT somehow applies on your income or on some, for example, capital appreciation, uh, okay. which d- it does not, in, in short. So therefore, it, it truly is a consumer tax. It's just on the on consumption of goods and services. Mm. Uh, so it's not at all in any way akin to income tax or capital appreciation tax. So don't be confused. All right, then. Uh, it's a, a stretched definition at best, in other words. Sonam Rupani's here today alongside me. NLT, a little bit poorly, should be back in tomorrow, I think. Drive Live Talks Legal. Right. Ludmilla Malibu is here. We've been having a discussion off air uh, during the break there, and I was kind of transfixed, actually. I didn't know that VAT could be so fascinating, but it is. And this is interesting because uh, now that we're beginning to understand and legal uh, minds such as you, Yours, Ludmilla, are really drilling down into the details of the law. Uh, You're starting to really understand things. Things are becoming clearer, as you would expect. Let's talk about, here's your phrase, the applicability of VAT on export of services. Things we didn't know. Indeed, and why why this obviously came up is because I am in the services industry myself, and this applies to all particular professional service providers. Uh, and because it's easier for me to contextualize and perhaps give examples, and that's why, believe it or not, this particular set of provisions was quite fascinating for me to to um, uh, to to note and um, yeah, and, and sort of and learn. Mm. Uh, and they are related to. Export of services. So in general terms, under the VAT, any export, and that's basically it's when we're shipping or producing something outside of the UAE, any export of either goods or services um, is generally speaking exempt. It's exempt. usually exempt. Yeah, VAT, yeah. Right. so it's exempt, meaning, meaning that it's not subject to zero uh, percent, it's just exempt. So like, let's, let's, look, um, uh, let's use an example of uh, us, my law firm, providing service to an American company in the U.S., based in the U.S., and let's say that company doesn't really have any, uh, doesn't have a branch or any business per se here. So they've hired us on some just general advisory work about if we wanted to set up a company in the UAE, how you how would that look? Or some sort of a legal memo, for example, analyzing the VAT law. Now, because that company, my client, is based in the U.S., they're non-resident, and so my service to them is 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 considered to be export of services, and therefore that would be subject to zero. Um, it's zero rated. Oh, sorry, not zero, it's exempt. Right. Uh, which means whenever I issue my invoice to that client, I do not even include or mention VAT. Now, if I do the same kind of service for 
for a client that's based in the UAE, I would always add the 5% VAT. Okay, so you don't even have to include that column? Correct, yes. There's no necessity of that? Correct, okay. yes. Now, because it's exempt, you see, because it's not zero. It's if, if it were zero rated, then I would include VAT, zero rated. But because it's exempt, it's basically not applicable, so it doesn't really belong on the invoice. Okay. Uh, now, but it's actually, as you're drilling down through the, in, uh, through the VAT laws, it's not so simple. There are certain kinds of services which, which may, may be either considered, perceived as, as being um, export of services. In fact, they may not be exempt. Uh, and there are two different categories. One related to the nature of services. And this, remember, applies to any kind of professional services, consultancy, um, auditing, accounting, um, legal services, and such. Uh, so one related to the services themselves, nature of the services, and the other one is the recipient of those services. So let me start with um, the nature of the services. Uh, let's say the same example of an American company. I provide now an uh, advice to them about a real property that they own here. Now, that particular advice is subject to VAT. And in fact, there are very clear and specific provisions in the VAT law that make it clear that any services that relate to real assets based in the UAE are subject to the 5% VAT, irrespective of where the client is. And therefore, they're not considered to be exempt or export. Um, so there's a provision in the law, several provisions regarding that, just real property itself. And then the other one, similarly, any services related to any other assets um, that are you that are based in the UAE, for example, bank accounts, cars, uh, whatever other boats, whatever other interests or companies that you may have here. Once again, those services, even if the recipient of the services, let's say the company, the individual, are based uh, most of the time uh, outside of the UAE, even those services, because of the nature of the services, they are actually subject to VAT of 5%. Okay? okay, so that's the nature of the services. And then similarly, if there is a client who is based, so that's the recipient of services, let's say I have a client who's based in France, and they're not a resident in the UAE, but they come regularly to um, the UAE, and I consult them on whatever legal matters, not related to either property or, or any of the physical assets in the UAE, but we provide general legal advice to them. And they don't really have any other links to the UAE. They don't have residence visa. They don't have any other assets. They pass through every so often. Well, even in, and, and the laws are quite specific. I'm not, not going to get into the nitty gritty of that, but in general terms, the laws are specific that even those uh, recipients of services may be considered as residents uh, for the purposes of those services and therefore not exempt from VAT if that person or those persons spend enough time in the UAE. So, for example, if they come to the UAE every every month or every two or three months for extended period of time, uh, then they will not be considered as actually being resident outside of the UAE and therefore all of my services to them will also be subject to VAT. Now let me give you a specific example to kind of help contextualize it. Uh, um, a lot of investors um, um, that are based in the UK, British investors here, and uh, perhaps they want some, uh, some just general corporate advice about what it would be like, you know, what are the company's laws in the UAE or even let's say VAT law, you know, how, how does that work? And uh, and this is perhaps uh, prior to them setting base here. Uh, so, but and they come over the course of the next six months. They come to the UE every two or three months, every two or three weeks, or every even every month. 
so even though they're not based here and all of our correspondence and all of the, the engagement agreements and everything else is based on them being based, let's say in France or in the UK, uh, then, e- but even in, th- in that case, if they're here in the UAE often enough, they are considered as being resident for the purposes of the export of services, and therefore, it's not an export of services; it's it's a locally provided service and subject to VAT. Okay, if you're a holiday maker here for a holiday of two to three weeks and you need legal services and you need to consult somebody. A professional such as yourself. Different matter. Uh, different, uh, unless you come on holiday every two months. Okay. Interesting, right? All right, then. So, uh, legal advice necessary, Ludmilla Yamala. But I know you're not trying to sell a service, but the point is... It's complicated. It it's is very it, complicated. It, exactly. Well, yes. I'm wondering how much how much is this actually going to impact uh, the way people decide to do business here in the UAE and with companies here in the UAE? I mean, will that 5% really hinder... Uh, overseas investors, it will certainly dampen the, uh, the 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 temperature a little bit, if you will, or the appetite uh, for a while, and that's normal. Anytime you introduce anything new, there'll be a bit of a dip until people get used to the idea and kind of figure out the, the ropes. Um, so certainly, that's that's already happening in many ways, but that was to be expected. And uh, as we go through the process, and we become more used to the idea, I, I don't see this becoming a huge deterrent from businesses. For and, and this is the idea, I will tell you, because what this country is continuing to look at is, is it wants to increasingly attract real businesses mm. and real people. Mm. So, so and that's kind of their general kind of long-term attitude. So if you are a real business wanting to look, you, know, you were looking at the UAE to set up base here for your, to grow your business, I mean, is the 5% really going to deter you? Uh, and that's, if you're not a real business and you're just using this as a base for something else, perhaps it will serve more of a, um, more of a deterrent. But if you are a true, uh, you know, you're a true kind of in the long-term uh, visionary or business person, then this in the long run, and relatively speaking, it's still a fairly small price to pay compared to so many other jurisdictions. So if you're in the business of tax avoidance, uh, or not in the business of, but if, if your business would prefer tax avoidance, then not the place for you. Well, I think in many ways it may still be, because it's all relative, right? I, I mean, look at so many other jurisdictions around where else do you have the combination of all things that we have here? The safety, the security, mm. the infrastructure, um, sort of you know, the modern the modern way of living and all the comforts. So, okay. it's all um, relative. Advice required. Um, understand the law. Saida Texina says, Article 45, uh, one of the VAT law is clear that export of services is zero rated, as you've mentioned. Article 46 deals with exemptions. There is no export therein. Right. So you have to look not at the law itself, but um, the regulations. Mm. The regulations really drill down into the details. So okay. as you see, this is, there's a lot of piecemealing that needs to be done. So there's the law, then there are the regulations, then there are the GCC customs uh, laws, and then there's the GCC VAT. And you really need to piecemeal it all together, which is a bit of a of a weaving exercise, and it's taking time. But obviously, uh, others are probably a lot more up to speed on this than than you know some. But this is the the, the regulations are a, a more I guess a, a much more detailed and helpful guide in terms of how to interpret the law itself. It's been a lot of burning the midnight oil at Yamalava Towers. There's been it? a lot of mind numbing days. I have to tell you, <laughs> at the end of the day, you were just I felt I've so many days in a row I felt just like a, a squeezed lemon. Just had no juices <laughs> left in me. <laughs> <laughs> from overthinking 
There's an image that's not going to go anytime soon, Ludmilla Malaba. We have a number of questions that we didn't get to last week that we will get to. Plus, let me see if I can go to Abdullah on line four, I think. Uh, Abdullah, appreciate you coming on. Hi, good afternoon. So you have a question for Ludmilla. This is your property manager, uh, Abdullah, is that right? Uh, we are. We have a property okay. management company. Okay. We're managing property on behalf of landlords who are not living or living in Dubai. Uh, we okay. collect the rent in our own name. Our name is there on the Ijari as well. All the rent come into our bank account, and then we deduct our fees and remit the funds to the landlord as and when required. My question is, do we charge VAT from our commercial properties from the tenants? Or is the landlord supposed to do that? Or only in cases where the landlord has properties where his rent is above 375, do we charge VAT? How does that work? How would it work? Uh, sure, great question. So let me break it up. Actually, there are two parts to your question because uh, they relate to two types of services. So one service is that you're actually managing and for all intents and purposes, you're, let's say, a legal representative of a landlord and therefore one and the same uh, for the purposes of managing that property for which you, let's say, have a power of attorney. So, and that relates okay. to the rent, right? That's commercial rent. Now, commercial yeah. rent is subject to VAT irrespective of the value of the, of, um, of the rent. Okay, so because there are two different types of transactions, if you will, that are subject to VAT, one related to the value of the transaction and two relates to um, the uh, sort of the nature of a particular transaction. So uh, commercial rent is subject to VAT irrespective of the total value that, let's say, the, the landlord or the owner derives from it. You see, so that one relates to just the the, the, the type of property that is subject to VAT. So with regards okay. to the rent that you collect on the owner's behalf, yes, you're required to collect the 5% because ultimately you represent the, uh, the landlord. With regards to the services you provide, when you said you offset your, or you subtract your fees, those are separate, you see? So let's say yeah. your rent is 100,000 dirhams and then your service is, let's say, 5,000. So you need to break it up and your invoice has to be very specific about it. So let's say the rent is 100,000 and then you have to take the 5,000 5, dirhams as a VAT that goes to the landlord, that the landlord picks up, um, ultimately, uh, collects uh, from the tenant on behalf of the government. But then you, as the property manager, you also have to, to charge VAT on your services and your services, whatever That's it right. is, be. So let's say it's 5,000 dirhams as well. So then you have to specifically list that as a separate uh, line item and collect 5% on your 5,000, let's say, um, service or maintenance fee. Yes. That's right. Okay, okay. Abdullah? Yeah, that's fine. All right. Good to talk to you. Appreciate you coming All on. Right. Thank you. Thank right, you. And so uh, th this is the thing, isn't it? Finally, we're starting to get some clarity through and the questions yeah. are being answered, which is uh, good to hear. Here's two questions for you on bonus payments. First of all, we'll call this person Paul. Paul tendered his resignation five months early, although his contract stipulates a two-month notice. Now, last month, his company paid out a bonus to staff, but not to Paul. Is Paul entitled to the bonus? In short, yes, because the bonus is considered to be part of your salary. So, and that's something that you will have already earned. So, it's not so much about when the company's policy requires or mandates for the bonus to be paid out, but rather uh, when that bonus would have been earned. So let's say in this case, the, the bonus goes from July to July and the person resigns in, um, in, in, in 
let's say, June, and his last date is August. Well, then he will have met July to July, so he will have earned that bonus for the one year. But company's policy, which is very often, actually not to pay the bonus until December. Well, the timing of when the company would pay the bonus is 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 an independent matter from when the bonus was earned. So the person leaves at the end of August. In September, the company is required to pay him that bonus because he will have earned it. Uh, uh, equally so, let's say, if he, uh, if he resigns halfway through the year, then he will be uh, he will be um, entitled to the pro rata of um, that bonus. Let's say six months. Okay, there you go, uh, Paul. Uh, da, da, da. From the perspective of technology and law and legal offices, does Ludmilla know of any software or app that makes it easier for lawyers and their clients to follow various stages of their court cases? Iskander is asking. That. No, unfortunately, not at this at this time. And uh, e- even more challenging is that. Even we as legal practitioners don't have access to a centralized database of all the laws and all the regulations and all the all the legal uh, matters um, that you know, would be sort of residing in the same uh, roof. Um, so even for us legal practitioners, there's a lot of piecemealing uh, that we need to do. And a lot of these things do actually change and continue to change and, and vary on, on so many other nuances, all of which also continue to change. So uh, at present, there isn't really a roadmap that I can point you to or any system or, or software that uh, that consolidates all that information in a useful way. Um, but I'm certain this is just a matter of time and we will continue to update listeners as, as those technologies or those tools become available. There's an opportunity there for Yamala and Petra, isn't there? I, uh, there's so many opportunities if I could <laughs> only have more time. <laughs> You didn't have to come in here every week, Lud Miller. Um, I'm looking for an app that gives more time. <laughs> yeah, ain't going to happen. How does end of service play in when you go from a limited to an unlimited contract where uh, base pay has drastically changed? Well, is it upwards or downwards? Um, my guess would be downwards there, but I mean, it just says drastically changed. That was a question that came in last week we didn't get to. Sure. In general, it's with regards to the end of service, um, end of service it, uh, whether the contract is limited or unlimited in nature, it's not as uh, it's not really relevant. Um, that particular limited or unlimited contract uh, is, um, uh, is is relevant. For example, if you're asking for arbitrary dismissal, uh, but with regards to end of service, it doesn't really matter. And um, uh, generally speaking, uh, it's uh, can you just kind of fi- re- review the f- the final. Um, question or the aspect of the question, Tim? Uh, where you go from a limited to an unlimited yeah. contract where base pay has drastically changed. Yeah, so the, the drastic pay, so here the key is, um, generally speaking, so the law says, it, and then the, and the court precedent said, it's the last salary. Right. So in most cases, actually, the salary usually goes up. And so we've had many clients where people have worked for 20 years, 15 years, and obviously they started on a much less salary. And in many cases, their contracts have not been updated to reflect the highest salary. But the courts don't really... In other words, you don't really worry. need to worry about what's on paper. The courts look at what has actually happened. And so they will look at your bank statement and if your bank and they will look your at your last bank statements as a benchmark off of which to calculate your end of service. But in most cases, actually, the, 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 you know, the salaries do go up. It is slightly more positive. There's a long question. We've got Ness on the line, actually, and this is to do with uh, LLC. So, uh, Ness, could you uh, put your question to Ludmilla uh, as quickly as you can? I know it's a tough one. Okay, um, we have an LLC company that we've had for the last five years and we're trying to close it down. Uh, the process has started a year ago and we were using a PRO company that then uh, 
engaged a, a liquidation company and uh, we're now at the stage where we're 13 months on it's still not closed and it's all because of the local partner whom we don't know uh, who seems to have left the country what grounds do we stand on because they're saying now that the local partner has to be in town to close close down the business where do we stand if he's not uh, sure well in, in, in short because we have a limited time it's a very complex matter and um, there's a bit of a misnomer in terms of the, the phrase local partner and you know his role with the company I understand that in your case you don't really know the local partner and he hasn't really been involved but legally speaking he is the, the he is a part owner of the company and if you have an LLC which you do he's a 51% owner of the company therefore he's a majority owner and so legally speaking irrespective of what your side agreement may say uh, he is he is the owner of the company and he owns at least 51 therefore you need his vote um, and uh, to close down the company and because closing down the company is such a big step um, therefore even the powers of attorney often are not sufficient to liquidate a company most uh, the authorities here often do require that the person uh, appears in person because it's such a, a drastic step but in the very least it's sometimes depending on the relationship and and uh, you know, so your relationship and contacts with the authorities it may be uh, possible to use a power of attorney uh, from the partner, but that's something that, I mean, I guess perhaps you can start at least with that, because ultimately you do need his sign-off along the way, practically every step of the way. So We've tried the power of attorney, and they've said no to that. There you go. And so now they're just, you know, we, we, we can't locate him, so we don't know what to do, because we're obviously still listed as uh, on part of the company and we can't close it down and they've already charged us the bureau company sort of 13,000 for the pleasure and now they're saying they want more money uh, for the next procedure which is the local which they can't find to close it down right so I mean the only other option is but again it sounds like your problem is is locating the partner himself but the other option is trying to find a different partner to replace this one so perhaps it may be more palatable for the partner to to sell his interest or transfer over his interest and then you can deal with the closing down of the business or transforming the business under the new partner and that's just my only other advice because yeah I mean you are in a sort of in, in the challenging situation where you do actually need this person um, to um, to play along in order for you to, to close the company but you know, I guess the upside or the, the flip side of it is that he ultimately is also going to going to be liable for any penalties or any other additional fees um, that need to be paid if you know since he's he's a shareholder but it's probably not as much of a concern to him as it is to you so in practical terms my recommendation just continue to try to, to find him and and find a settlement with him because otherwise you might be in for a much longer game Ness, we are out of time, unfortunately, but if you will keep your number, if we can get you on next week, uh, would that help you at all? Uh, I think you've pretty much answered. I've got to find the local partner. Okay. Uh, Ness, all the best. Right. Thank you for calling in. Thanks so much. That's Bye. Uh, Drive Live Talks Legal. Ness on the line there. We're over time, unfortunately. It's always the way. It always gets busy at the end. Drive Live Talks Legal today featured Ludmilla Yamalava, and thank you again. Always a pleasure. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcast at DubaiEye1038.com.